Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor here at this church. If you're new with us, we'd love the chance just to get to know you a little bit better, maybe take you out for coffee or a meal. And so if that's you, if you look in the chat box of Facebook right now, there'll be a link to a digital connect card. We'd love for you to fill that out just so we can get that opportunity to get to know your story and you can get an opportunity to get to know a little bit more about us. And we are just thrilled that you have chosen to spend part of your weekend with us here at the end of February. As a church, we've found ourselves in the middle of the most famous sermon of all time preached by Jesus himself. And now we're right in the middle of the most famous section of that sermon, more commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and let's pick up in Matthew chapter 6, and we will be there in just a few moments. Now we've been intentionally walking through this sermon slowly, uh, kind of going one verse at a time. And we discussed that a little bit last week on why we're doing that. So we can see how each part of this prayer works together like a chain linking uh, together to make it in its whole. It's really dense, and I really want us to get a grasp as a church when it is that we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray as individuals and as a church. I think I've said this the last two or three years, but I mean it. I want us to grow in prayer because the reality is this is the only hope that we have. We can read a lot of books and we can strategize and do all these other things, but apart from seeking the Lord and asking the Lord to intervene and work, it's really going to be useless. And so I want us to grow in prayer. And so every week, the reason we've gone so slow is we say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. But there's also a concern that if we go so slow that we can easily miss the full context of how it is that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And so what I don't want us to miss is that the, more than half of this prayer is focused on God. Most of us, when we pray, I think it's quite the opposite. It's focused on me and my problems and my wants and my needs and my desires. But what we notice right away here is it's focused on God, not just asking him for a list of things. And so this is really why I want us to go so slow, because I want us to get a right understanding of who God is, but also want us to get a proper view of how it is that we are to go to God in prayer and not just jump into our list of things. And so speaking of prayer, let me open this morning with prayer, and then we will get into the next part of the Lord's Prayer. Pray with me, church. God, we come to you and just thank you for another Sunday where we can gather as Sojourn Church. We can gather as your people in the city of Portland. Got a group of people who are far from perfect, but God, we are on this journey of learning what it means to follow you and follow you faithfully in the city of Portland. God, I ask this morning as we continue on in the Lord's Prayer, as we look at this next section, God, that you would speak to us and that you let us apply this to our lives. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, church, Matthew chapter six. We'll go ahead and go back to verse nine and read through verse 15. Matthew six, verses nine through 15. It says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, when we look at this prayer in its entirety, we see the first three petitions stand independently from one another. 
And then these last three are linked through the Greek word for and, our conjunction that we use and, and as they link those together. Now, last week we talked about the daily bread and what it is that God provides for us, not just a meal, but the provisions that we need for the necessities to live life. And now this week, we're gonna look at what Jesus says to us about forgiveness. Now, there's a lot that we can say about forgiveness. Obviously, the forgiveness that we're all in need of from Jesus, but then we're also talking about that forgiveness that we are to extend to others. And so while much can be said, I want to try to keep this within the context of what Jesus is actually referring to here in this prayer. And so our aim this morning, if you're taking notes, will be to answer three questions. The first question is, why does anyone need to pray for forgiveness? If God knows that we need it, why doesn't he just grant it to us? Our second question is, why does a Christian need to ask for forgiveness? You might be thinking, well, you know, I was taught that once saved, always saved. So you pray and ask God forgiveness and maybe you don't ever really need to do it again. And why is it that now reading this prayer, it looks like we're supposed to ask for forgiveness again? And then our third question is, how do our prayers for forgiveness impact our forgiveness of others? So let's go ahead and pick right up with that first question. Why does anyone need to pray for forgiveness? Now, to help us understand this question, a friend of mine, Pastor Matt Blackwell, provides four ways that we deal with guilt, which points to why it is we need to pray for forgiveness. He says the first way we deal with guilt is the what he calls the distractor. This is the person that you know that you've messed up, but you decide, I'm gonna keep myself busy. Instead of seeking forgiveness, I'm just gonna distract myself with other things, with vices in life. So maybe that's Netflix or Maybe that's alcohol, or maybe that's the internet, or social media, or maybe it's pornography, or maybe it's something else, and you you end up being empty, but you say, I'm going to distract myself to kind of numb that guilt and that shame that I feel, and instead of seeking the forgiveness that I actually need, I'm just going to forget about it. The second person is the comparer. This is the person who you know that you've messed up. You feel that guilt. You feel that shame. You know you need forgiveness. But instead of seeking forgiveness, what do you do? You compare yourself with someone else. You say, but I'm not nearly as bad as that person. Like, yes, I did this, but they did this and this. And theirs is way bigger than what I've done. Now, if God grades on a curve, then, hey, we're probably good to go. But there are, you know, you think there's way worse people than me. But God doesn't compare us to other people. Do you know who God compares us to? God compares us to his son, Jesus. And every single one of us fail short fail and fall short when we are compared to Jesus. But here's the good news. He offers us forgiveness anyway. The third type of person is the crusher. This is the person who you just get down on yourself. You go, man, I know that I've messed up. So I've got this guilt and the shame and you just kind of wallow in it. And you don't want to talk to anyone. You don't want to hear anyone. You no longer want to seek God himself. You push God away. You push others away. You quit going to church. You quit going to gospel community because you're just so crushed by the guilt and the shame that you no longer want to press into community. And so what you're doing, though, if you're this person, you're simultaneously, you're maximizing your sin, you're putting your sin up here, and you're putting God's grace down here, and you're minimizing it, when it should actually be quite the opposite. I sent a text to a good friend of mine this week who, um, unfortunately, there was an area of sin that came out, and his family's dealing with that now, and it's the heartache which sin always causes, but Um, This caused some ripple effects. I said, man, I said, I want to remind you, brother. I said, I know you know this. I said, but there's nothing you could have done to make God love you less. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And he responds, man, I really needed that reminder. And so I said that to you this morning as well, church. If you're the one who's found yourself just kind of crushing yourself. And the fourth type of person is the the definer. This is the person who tries to, you don't seek forgiveness, but you try to avoid the guilt, the shame by, you just simply change the definition of right or wrong. 
so that you no longer feel bad about it. This is happening more and more in our culture, especially amongst millennials and Gen Z. And I'm not picking on those generations. I am a millennial. And so you see that we, we've taken things. We say, man, I'm just going to change the definition. And I know the Bible says this, but I'm going to kind of rewrite that part. And I'm going to do some hermeneutical gymnastics in order to make that sin fit my lifestyle and fit what I want it to say. But really what you're doing is your posture is, God, I don't actually trust what it is that you say. I don't trust what is good and right by your word. And so, God, I'm going to change that for myself so I feel better about it and that, you know, I'm going to be that definer. But let's look at what Romans 6, 23, what God actually says about us. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here's the thing. Jesus sees who you fully are and he loves you completely in spite of who you are. This is good news. Regardless of who you are this morning, regardless of how you've entered this gathering, the baggage and the guilt and the shame, rather you can take all that baggage and you can lay it at the foot of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, at the cross and say, he has accepted you completely in and of himself. This comes from the confession though here that we see in this prayer that says, God, forgive me my debts. Now, if you're unfamiliar with confession and the biblical and Christian context, confession is essentially agreeing with God and what God says about who you are. Agreeing that there is something that is actually broken in you, which by the way, does that, that includes every single one of us. And so you're agreeing with God while also trusting that God has provided a way in Jesus who can actually fix that brokenness. Romans 3.22, it says, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so my question to you this morning, are you still trying to pay for your own debt? Are you still trying to pay for the debt of your sin in your life? Stop trying. It is impossible. You can't pay for it. If you've tried, you know that. If you've tried, you failed time and time again. And you might be on the verge of just quitting church. You might be on the verge of saying, I'm walking away from this. I can no longer do it. It's because you can't do it. But here's the good news. There's one who can. There's a free gift of forgiveness for all sin and all debt that's available in Jesus Christ. And so we see this fifth petition of the prayer that says, forgive us our debts. And this does not mean that believers need to ask for daily justification. So if you're already a Christian, you might be thinking, man, do I have to every single time like go like, God, please forgive me again because I'm afraid if I die in my sleep or get in a car accident that I don't know where I'll go for eternity. Like, no, that's not what this is saying. But since believers are justified forever from the moment of initial saving faith, Romans 5.1, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not saying that we need to go and pray for justification daily. Rather, this is a prayer of restoration of personal fellowship with God. In other words, we have that ongoing relationship with God if we're already a Christian, but when we sin, we do hinder that relationship. We do put a wedge in that relationship. And so what this is saying is those of us who have been forgiven, we should be overwhelmed and moved with gratitude towards God that we, we go back to him and say, God, please forgive me where I've messed up again. But then also what this is implying is that we then extend that forgiveness to others. Even when we feel like we've been done wrongful, that there's been some kind of injustice towards us, that we would be going, I'm gonna extend this forgiveness towards you. Not because I want to, but because God for extended forgiveness towards me when I did not deserve it. Scott McKnight, he says, in our faith, we are taught that the real number one is God has forgiven us. So the real order, as implied by Jesus, is this. 
that first off, God has graciously forgiven us. And he's forgiven us of much greater sin. Right? Is we don't actually know the, the, the weight and depth of our sin. I think the longer you're walking in Jesus, the more you understand that. I can look back to 10 years ago when I thought, you know, I kind of was minimizing my sin, but going, man, like I realized the longer I follow Jesus, how much more of a need I am of Jesus. And so God has graciously forgiven us of sin. Therefore, we are to forgive God's extent of grace to others. And so what, what he's saying here is like, if we don't forgive others, then there's something wrong. Like we don't have an understanding. We don't have a proper understanding of what we have been forgiven of because forgiven people forgive others. But our forgiveness does not earn God's forgiveness. Think of it this way, forgiveness is reciprocal. So you have been forgiven. So it's a natural response then of your heart. It's an overflow that then now you will extend that forgiveness to others. That leads us to our second question this morning. Why does a Christian need to ask for forgiveness? So if you're a Christian, you might be thinking like, I thought once I got saved and you know I said this prayer, like I was forgiven forever. You know, once saved, always saved, I received salvation. So why do I need to go back and ask for forgiveness again? Like, am I, have I not been forgiven? I thought it was, you know, you got this free gift of salvation. It was a one-time thing. And so while it's true that you are forgiven at the moment of salvation and you only get saved one time, you need continual forgiveness for your sanctification. But to truly understand our relationship with God, it's multi-layered. Okay, so there's a legal sense in which we're all guilty before God. And so if we were in a court of law, we would all be guilty. We'd all be sentenced to life in prison or to death. So there's that legal sense. But since we have Jesus and we have the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, it is no longer in the books. So all of our guilty sentences have been pardoned. And so if we show up in the court of law, they go, you are actually innocent, not because of something you did, but, but, but Jesus came through. I mean, what else, who else do you want as a lawyer? But Jesus came in as the substitute for you. So that's no longer held against you in the legal sense. So we're no longer guilty, amen? So this means all past, all present, and all future sins have been forgiven. Now, I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but once again, if you are in Christ, all your past, all your present, all your future sins have been forgiven. And so, yes, your response might be, I mean, I wanna shun myself away from community. I wanna shun myself away from God because I found myself tripped up again and again. And maybe you found yourself in a habitual sin or maybe you found yourself in a secret sin, What this is saying is that your past, your present, and your future sins have already been forgiven in Christ. You just need to open your arms and and fall into the loving arms of Jesus who has already forgiven you. At the same time, we relate to God as our Father. Remember back to verse nine. And so when we sin, which we all still do, we go back to our Father with this broken relationship, with this wedge that we've kind of put in there. I think about my three boys who I love dearly. But there's sometimes there's, there's kind of a brokenness in our relationship. Now, I don't mean that I'm no longer their father. Of course, I'm, I'm always their father and they're still my children. I still love them as much as I always have. And I love them more every day. But there are times when maybe they do something that disappoints me or maybe I hear them talk back to their mom or something that kind of puts a wedge in that relationship. You've probably experienced this with your own children. You've maybe experienced this with your own parents. I mean, there's been times I've had a, go back and have a call with my dad. We had to kind of work through some stuff and reconcile with one another. And thankfully, my dad is my earthly father, but he's also my brother in Christ. I know he's tuning in this morning. So dad, I'm glad we've been able to do that and get through those times together and, and model this here. But there's times when there's, there's been a wedge with my relationship with my own children. And then when they crawl up into my lap and I'm sitting in a recliner and say, dad, I'm sorry. Now, how do you think I respond? You better be a boy, you better go to your room. No, I don't respond that way. I say, okay, praise God, a prodigal son has returned. 
Let's go kill the fattened calf and have a party. Okay, maybe I don't go quite to that extent, but that's what we see in the prodigal son's story. Or maybe think of it this way. There's a married couple. And at their wedding day, they've, they share their vows. They pour out their heart and their love in front of an audience of people, in front of the pastor. And he looks at the bride and he says, I love you. And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Now, let's fast forward 20 years. It's our 20th anniversary, which in our society, I mean, that's something to celebrate, that they've, they've lasted and really thrived in the marriage for 20 years. But imagine that they're on their anniversary and she looks at him and says, do you remember our wedding day? Of course I do. Do you remember our time that we were sharing our vows and you looked at me and you said that you loved me and that you would take care of me the rest of my life? Yeah, absolutely, I remember that. But what if she then looked at him and said, that was the last time you told me. That was the last time you ever told me that you loved me. Now, that would be a really strange, okay? Now, like maybe he said, oh, but I've shown you love and I've bought you gifts. I've given you flowers and I've done all these things. I've taken care of you. That might be true, but still be really strange. He's never said the words, I love you again. In the same way, it'd be really weird if we went to God 20 years into a relationship with him and said, well, God, I asked for forgiveness 20 years ago when I walked that aisle at that church. Like, God, don't you remember that? You expect me to say, ask for forgiveness again? I mean, I know I've done a bunch of other stuff and really messed up, but come on, God. I mean, I already asked for, that'd be, that'd be just as weird as, if he had never told his wife that he loved her again after 20 years. Now, this doesn't mean that you've lost salvation if you haven't gone back and, and asked for forgiveness for other things you've done since the moment of salvation, but it might mean that there's some kind of wedge in that relationship. Maybe this morning you think, man, I've been feeling distance from God. That might be why. Maybe you've never opened up to your father in heaven and hallowed his name and opened up and confessed sin in your life and asked for forgiveness that he is going to readily give you. And so why do we pray this prayer? We pray this prayer because we celebrate it as it reminds us of the cross and our forgiveness in Jesus. That is why we pray this prayer, even as Christians. Brings us to our third and final question this morning. How do our prayers impact our forgiveness of others? Look back at verses 14 and 15 with me. It says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so we see Jesus reemphasizes in these final two verses here the importance of forgiving others, indicating that a direct relationship between forgiveness of God in your life and your forgiving of others in your life. D.A. Carson says these verses reinforce the thought of the fifth petition from verse 12. So we see that back in verse 12, which we looked at this morning, and now verses 14 and 15, there's this repetition which serves to stress that there's a deep importance for the community of disciples to be a forgiving community in order for its prayers to be effective. And so imagine if you're praying for something. Imagine that you feel like you're in a dry season, you feel distant from God. Well, one thing we ask is, is there anything I have against somebody? Is there anyone I haven't forgiven, especially within the body of Christ? You know, I think one of the things we always want to pray for is unity. And there was a period in time, not that long ago, over a year ago, but sojourners experienced some disunity. And the reality is people harbored some things against one another and they just couldn't reconcile and they just weren't able to operate and forgive one another. And so we were, we were to be marked by being a forgiving people because the reality is we're gonna let you down. As a pastor, I'm gonna let you down. As a friend, I'm gonna let you down. And so are the other people in the church and you're gonna let me down. But can we forgive one another? Can we reconcile with one another? And can we continue on as the body of Christ that God has called us to be? And so as we see in verse 12, it says, forgive your trespasses, and it here refers to personal restoration of relationships with God and not to just our initial justification. And then we see the next prayer is forgive us our debts. And we think forgiveness, it's indispensable to your life and the health of your soul as the food is to the body. 
We have to be able to forgive other people. It'll eat you up inside and you will have a hardness of heart. I know friends going through marriage struggles right now, and that's some of what I've watched, is there's just this lack of forgiveness that's that's able to take place and their heart just gets hardened and, and calloused over. It's almost like when you take sandpaper and just wear away at their heart until they can finally open it up and realize that there's a hardness there that should not be the mark of a Christ follower. I know it's hard, but remember the whole Sermon on the Mount, like this is radical Christianity. We're to live a countercultural lifestyle. That's the way that the world lives. The world, we should see marriages where they get hardness of hearts and don't get along with one another and get separated and get divorced. But the, the church should be marked by something very different. And we see the additions of the words here. It says, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and it's further emphasized in these verses 14 and 15, which follow the prayer, and they state that our Father will forgive us if we forgive others. But he will not forgive us if we refuse to forgive others. Now, this certainly does not mean that you earn forgiveness. It's not like, well, hey, I forgive you, I forgive you, you know, and okay, now I've earned this forgiveness. God, you owe this to me. But rather what this is showing is that you have a proper understanding of the forgiveness that God has given you. Because by, by you having that proper understanding, you will naturally overflow and forgive others. And so that's what that's saying there, is if you're not willing to forgive others, then you actually don't have a proper understanding of God's forgiveness in your life. And so it's not that the act of forgiveness itself, it's not that that earns a, an eternal award, but rather it's evidence of God's grace at work in your life. That man, now that you've been forgiven, you now are a person who's known for mercy and grace and extending forgiveness to others. And so Jesus is saying, if you fail to forgive and you fail to, for, to demonstrate forgiveness to others, then you clearly haven't felt the saving touch of my grace in your life. And so what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus is connecting these two components here of forgiveness, of the receiving and the offering that they really work hand in hand, that if you have received forgiveness, then you are willingly offering forgiveness to others and that you are now a forgiving person because you've been a forgiven person and it becomes a natural overflow of who you are in Jesus. Now, forgiveness is a really hard thing to do. It's not, it's not something that's easy to do and Jesus doesn't tell us it's easy to do. And I wanna be sensitive that some of you have been hurt. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have been overlooked. And so you might be thinking this morning, Matt, I'm just not sure I can do it. I love Jesus. And I love the forgiveness he's offered me, but I'm just not sure I can forgive that person. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what that family member did to me. You don't know what that coworker said to me. You don't know how that neighbor treated me. C.S. Lewis says, everyone says forgiveness is a beautiful thing until they have something to forgive. Everyone says forgiveness is a beautiful thing until they have something to forgive. How true that quote is. And so what do we often do? Oftentimes, instead of forgiving someone, we take justice into our own hands and we start defining people in light of their offense against us and we make them out to some type of caricature and we always label them that way. But thank God that he doesn't do that with us. Thank God that he doesn't define us by our sin. Thank God he doesn't define us by our brokenness. Thank God he doesn't define us by that thing we continue to return to. And so Jesus gave us an example in Matthew 18 to really kind of drive this point home. So we have Peter and Jesus in this example. And Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how often am I to forgive someone? Now, the cultural norm at that time was that you would forgive somebody three times. And then the fourth offense, you didn't have to forgive them. And so whoever that person was in your life, you think, okay, I've forgiven you three times. If it happens again, there's no forgiveness it's off the table. So Peter, I can imagine he thinks he's pretty clever. 
He comes to Jesus and he says, how many times I forgive someone? Seven times? Now, Peter's thinking, man, I've doubled the culture standard of three. I've made it six. I've added one more. So now I'm saying seven, like Jesus is going to be impressed with me. And then Jesus comes back and says, no, Peter, actually, it's more like 77 times or 70 times seven. In other words, Peter, the actual number is not that important. But what Jesus is doing, he's getting beyond the culture. The culture says three times, but I'm getting beyond the culture because the Jesus ethic is very different than the cultural ethic. Oftentimes, I think the church right now, we're in this phase of being guilty of, of being discipled more by the culture than the church is culturing, I mean, discipling the culture. And so Jesus said, I'm getting beyond that. So Peter's now been put in his place by Jesus. And Jesus said, let me tell you a story, Peter. He said, there's a king. And this king has all of these servants. And these servants take out loans from the king, so they go and work the land. Now, eventually, the king calls them all back. It's time for them to pay back the loans. He says, pay back all your debt that you owe to me. Now, one servant comes before the king. He's got a massive debt, okay? This is the person who went to college and maxed out every credit card that they would give them for a free T-shirt or a pizza. He's got a massive debt, 10,000 talents. Well, 10,000 talents, what is that to us? I mean, I've got about five talents, so 10,000 sounds like a lot. 10,000 talents is the equivalent of 17 years wages for 10,000 people. Now, how you racked up that much money debt, I have no idea. So this would be the equivalent of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. In other words, an unpayable debt. There's no way this person is gonna be able to earn enough money to pay back the king in their lifetime. So the servant says, king, I cannot pay this debt. The king responds by saying, well, bad news. You, your wife, your children, all of your family are going to be put in prison for the rest of your life. So what does the servant do? He throws himself on the mercy of the king and says, please have patience with me. I will repay you everything. In that moment, the king has compassion on the servant and he forgives the debt completely. Now that's ludicrous. That is costly to the king. Those debts don't just disappear, but the king absorbs all of those debts at a great cost to himself. And he sends out the servant forgiven. And what a great ending to a story. But it doesn't end there. The servant walks out and immediately sees a friend who owes him a few hundred dollars. He looks at the friend and says, hey, you owe me money. And the friend's like, yeah, I know. I'm working on getting it to you. It's been a rough week, but I'll pay you back soon. Servant looks at him and says, no, you owe me money. He grabs him by the throat and he starts to strangle him and yell at him and say, you owe me money. I want my money now. His friend's able to only get out a few words as he's kind of being choked out. And he says, have patience with me. And I will pay you everything. Now, this sounds very familiar or should to the servant because he literally in the scene prior to this, used the same phrase with the king. And the king forgave his debts of millions. And now here he is demanding an immediate payment of a few hundred dollars, very small in comparison to the debt that he just was forgiven. But what do we find? We find the servant unwilling to forgive a relatively small debt when he was forgiven a massive debt. Now, what is Jesus doing with this story? Why does he include that? Why does he tell this to Peter? What Jesus is doing for us is he's holding up a mirror in front of us this morning. So if you've got a mirror look nearby, maybe look at it. Jesus wants to hold up this mirror to Peter. He wants to hold up this mirror to us. And he's saying to those who have been forgiven much and unpayable debt, the wages of sin was death that was paid for us. He says, how can you now, church, not be a forgiving people when you've been forgiven so much? I've forgiven you an unpayable debt. Now you are to turn and forgive others. How is it you couldn't do this? And so we know as a Christ follower, as those that are kingdom citizens, those who are living out this countercultural lifestyle, we are, we are uh, living out a high calling. 
which is why we pray this prayer, Father, forgive me and make me a forgiving person. Now, the king's grace in this story told to it's meant to be shocking. And the servant's lack of forgiveness is meant to be appalling because it shows us what it looks like that the servant here wasn't acting like his king. And to solve this, what do we do? We need to look at King Jesus who became the servant. Jesus, who is king, who went to great debts and unpayable debt on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. There's no way we could have paid for our sins. There is no way our sin would have led us straight to death and destruction. And that is where it leads you, apart from Jesus. And so if you aren't in Christ this morning, I invite you this morning to embrace Jesus, to embrace that forgiveness that only he can offer you. And for those of you who are in Christ, this should cause us to worship in our time of response because this was an unpayable debt. We had no other way and Jesus offered us forgiveness. Remember the worst moment of suffering in Jesus' life. He's hanging on the cross. And what does Jesus do? He looks up and he prays. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. So we see that Jesus didn't just teach us to pray. Jesus just wasn't theoretical and in your head. Jesus actually modeled for us and lived out what prayer looks like. And in that moment, Jesus is praying on the cross for every single one of us who sins put him on the cross. Every one of us who in our sin didn't know what we were doing. And the last phrase that came out of Jesus' mouth on the cross, he says, it is finished. It has been paid in full. You, church, have been forgiven. Now, admittedly, some ways, I don't know the depths of the pain that you're going through. I don't know the wrongs that have been committed against you. I don't know what forms of injustice as you have felt come against you. But there is one who does. We know the one who has felt the weight of justice. We know the one who has felt the weight of betrayal. We know the one who has felt the weight of every sin done to him. And what does he do? What does he say? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. It is finished. It is paid in full. And so, sojourn, how are we to live this out? How are we to live out this costly prayer of forgiveness to extend that forgiveness to others when we feel like we've been wronged against? Because it is really, really hard. The way that we are to do that is one, to embrace and accept the forgiveness that has been given to us freely in Jesus. And it's not easy to live this out, but freely in Jesus and to then go and be reciprocal reciprocal in our forgiveness of others. And so I want to finish by praying for us. I want to finish by praying that, Father, just as you have forgiven me, make me a forgiving person. And so I want that to be the prayer of our heart this morning and this week as we go out from this place today. So church, pray with me. Father God, we come to you. We want to praise your name. God, we ask for your kingdom to come in Portland as it is in heaven. God, we ask for your will to be done, not what we want, but what you want. God, we ask that you give us this day our daily bread. God, allow us to forgive others because you have forgiven us. God, help us to understand the weight and the depth of the unpayable debt that we had that you freely forgave by sending your son Jesus to die on a cross to raise again to new life. God, I ask that anyone who doesn't know you this morning, that they would embrace that message for the very first time and become a son or a daughter of you as you are calling them to yourself. And they would start that journey of learning what it means to follow you, Jesus. And God, for those of us who are in Christ, that we would be mindful and reminded of this again, 
And God, it would turn our hearts into a posture of worship as we pray, Father, just as you have forgiven me, make us a forgiving people. It's in your name and by your power we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen, church. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.